You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This is Standing in Two Worlds with Dr. Sam Juni and Yerushalayim Irakadish. I'm Aprom Kivalevich. Uh, Sam, you know, I, I, I noticed a pattern over the last two weeks and aspect of breaking in, breaking windows, entering the chamber, and running wild. And of course, the I have not seen um, full uh, videos of those images, but I know that the law enforcement here in the United States, the FBI, are checking those images carefully and finding people who have sort of normal lives other than, you know, and, 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 and were somehow transformed and somehow changed in this, into the, through this mob to violence, to anger and violence, uh, to the point that it boggles the mind uh, that this could happen, especially in the United States, which doesn't, it's not Argentina. It doesn't have a uh, history of, 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 of attacks against the capital. There's even a, a sense of a sacred place that of, of what of how law and democracy works. And here were these people. Some of them, unfortunately, I saw the images of, of from people, religious people, people you wouldn't expect to do be doing these things, and yet they definitely did. We saw them. It's there. And I'm thinking, based on especially what we've been talking about, this transformation that occurs this mob transformation that we know about for uh, has happened throughout history, whether it was in, in, in lynch riots uh, in, in the turn of the century of the, of the 20th century against African-Americans or in, in Europe uh, through the Nazi era and beyond about people who we would say are solid citizens marching and destroying and, 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 and looting. How do you, again, this is your, area, how the human mind reacts and changes from the stimulus to be, to sort of act totally different to the point of being much more than the term Vildachaya, aggressive, angry. What's your read on this? And how do we explain this phenomenon other than saying, when you get in a mob, this is what happens. Break it down for us. Okay, I have no problem breaking things down. And um, again, I will, of course, zero in on the areas that I know about and try to set out clearly what I don't know anything about because um, I'd rather say things that make sense rather than venture into areas which I have nothing about. I'm a little bit conservative that way. All right, so let, let me try to pull this apart. So um, my experience is, 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 is it's it's... It's varied. Now, it goes in different directions. My actual clinical experience is with people, okay, with individuals, not with political movements, that's for sure. Um, I did a lot of work also with entire minority groups, um, and then primarily, I would say, in the last 15 years, we're talking mostly mostly about Hasidim, uh, different Hasidic groups, and also different Arab groups. Um, groups within Israel. So in the 
groups like this, this I basically call this kind of um, a, a, a so, the sociology of group movements is it falls between the cracks. I don't know that much about it, but of course I think I can extrapolate or at least look at the stuff that I do know about and that we have figured out and see where we can go with this. So uh, let me let me zero in on some issues, okay? Um, I've done a lot of work with cults, okay? Or with Not me with cults. I've done it with cult members, you know? No cult ever came to me and said, let's deprogram a cult. But I've had people who were involved with cults who were there... Um, where one of the presenting issues may have been, let's get out of this cult. And I just want to categorize that my work with cults has shown to me that the single factor that I can deal best with is when they unite around a person. I'm not even sure that I've ever worked with cultists who are into a movement as such. I work with people who are uh, captivated or uh, bowled over by a specific person who becomes central in their life and then they are basically negate their own personality or their own needs kind of blend in to the needs or wishes of that person. So, so we can deal with that and I'll definitely extrapolate from there to what's going on. Um, I will not say anything about the entire movement or the entire phenomenon I don't know about movements, political movements, or even social movements. I do know about the um, um, perspective of an individual who gets drawn into whatever a movement is doing and then lose their personality. That's a clinical expertise that I'm very comfortable with. Okay, so um, let's see. What do I know? I know a lot about the mentality of people who get so turned on by their individual group, that they lose their sense of morality, of values, and of judgment. And I'm thinking, I'll tell you specifically, I'm thinking um, of fights within Arab clans. When I say fights, I mean killing fights, guns, knives, or whatever. Cousins, first cousins. Um, I've never seen the siblings, but definitely cousins. They go at each other, and they hate that person more or they're more turned on or frenzy about the person than they would be about someone who is really after them. Somebody is out to destroy the whole family. They get so much messed up within cousins. They, they just lose themselves because the clan fight develops. And um, the, the closest I can think about are Hasidic uh, breakups within certain movements, not against, not A versus B. It's within. So specifically... I'm thinking with what I've experienced is within Satmar, within the Aralach, within the Vizhnitzers, and within the Balavs. Okay? So I'm talking about individuals who get carried away because belonging to a certain subgroup. So that's A. Um, I also um, have had experience to, uh, well, let's put it this way. Going back in my history, Woodstock. I remember the Woodstock phenomenon. There were people there who literally lost their marbles for a week or so. They became so drawn in that they were involved in issues, well, call it equality and love and freedom and whatever it was, totally inappropriate, made no sense. Some people lost um, uh, money. They lost a significant part of what we consider self-respect, part of their heritage. And it made no sense. It was just like getting drawn in. Um, I know the Uman phenomenon, again, from some patients and some people that I know who go there 
and they just get so drawn in by the group effect and what they're doing. And they're also, it is cultist because Rabbi Nachman is in charge, even though he's not, well, maybe he is. Okay, let me not get involved with that. So I know that phenomenon. Um, I can tell you, um, I personally have two associations. One is, I was, of course, always a curious kid, and I used to go sometimes to the Satmar Rebbe's Tish when I was a little kid, okay? And there were thousands of people there. I had no idea what the guy was saying, but these people were so enthusiastic. I got, got, just got so carried away with, wow, this is really it. I had no idea what it meant, but get fallen over hair over heels, and I felt, I felt I was part of something that was going on. I couldn't even define what it was. And I remember once... Um, Again, being drawn as a curious bystander to a protest that occurred in Borough Park when I was, I don't know, 12 or 13 years old, was against the police. I must have done something or not done something that evoked the eye of the community. And I remember getting drawn along. And if you would have told me then, would you like to kick a policeman? I would have said yes. And I have no idea why I want to do that. So people get drawn in. People lose their sense of equanimity. They lose their sense of who they are. And that's a phenomenon that's just there. So I have a pretty good understanding of groups from a different perspective. And that is from running real small groups, T-group styles. And uh, I'm pretty much of an expert of that. I've done, taught that for many years. In fact, I used, it, used to use it as a tool um, to teach um, minority um, um, psychology in Israel for 10 years. I taught it very heavily using group theory. So I'm willing to talk about that a little bit more um, uh, esoteric, but I'm sure you want to frame this so we don't run away from the issue. So why don't you frame it some more? <laughs> okay. Well, I, I feel like you now, when I uh, ramble on and then I have to sort of respond, uh, I feel like you, uh, like what you usually feel after I give the intro. Um well, you definitely have, have thrown out some things here. I'm, I'm trying to listen and, and comprehend. Uh, you talked about the idea of uh, an, a cult figure, um, a, a head of a cult figure. Is that what was one of the primary dynamics, the way you read it, um, that what we had uh, was, let's say, Trump as the leader of the cult figure and therefore people finding some sense of greatness with the semi-worship of the cult figure. Uh, also, right, that's one thing I guess you're suggesting. The other thing I think you're suggesting is that once uh, you're... I, I, need, I, no, wait, I need, wait, I need to put in the qualifier there. In any phenomenon, there's truth and there's the way an individual could perceive it. I have nothing to say about truth. I am not a political commentator. My political acumen is minus zero. It's nowhere. I can just say that for some people, this was an issue about a person, okay? On both sides. This person is, like, phenomenal. He's the next messiah. This person is a psychopath, scoundrel, or whatever. So, again, the conflict here was zeroing in about a person, and to that extent, it shared some of the mentality that people have when they get drawn into cults. That's my only... I have no... Opinion. I don't have any in- intelligent opinion about what's going on. Here, right. But I do but, but, know but, for some people, they felt this guy, this guy is being uh, purloined. This guy is being set and dreaded. So, yes, to that extent, they would have the same reaction towards Trump than you would, than the guy would have towards the Satmar Rebbe or somebody will have t- towards the Rebbe from 48, 59, 50, 86th Street, wherever they are. Sure. They felt it was the person. Right. Which, so, which, yes. which again, will, getting to my original statement, 
they would do things which they wouldn't normally do in terms of their uh, average yes. normal interaction in a civil way between as neighbors Precisely. and as citizens. Precisely. There's, there's the idea of what's called for here is beyond normal civil behavior because of the greatness, because of the... Um, the, 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 the extenuating, let's say, extenuating circumstances, the end of the world is near, the apocalypse, uh, these people are trying to uh, commit genocide, or whatever, those kinds of issues that right. basically say, forget normal business. You are now transformed into a different kind of person. And again, when I get to my theory, you'll know where I'm going with this. Right. So, Go again, what's interesting, though, is that that doesn't necessarily have to be centered on a specific messianic or uh, a change figure, whether it's Cesar Chavez or Martin Luther King, whatever it is. It could actually be about the idea... But it seems like in, in, this, in this mob mentality to happen, it seems like to latch on to another human being that you idolize or that you elevate allows you to make that jump. Whereas if it's just the idea that we're fighting for, whether it's climate change or uh, against abortion, whatever the thing is, somehow having the martyr, the leader, uh, the person who symbolizes that, gets you able to focus and put the blinders on your perception to weed out or to uh, to, to to block out the normal uh like constraints of behavior so it's interesting that it's not just my it's somehow you need that person and that person's story that is it resonates within you the same way i guess writers of fiction and even history know that you need to uh, you need to connect to a certain figure that somehow relates to you it, it, other than an abstract or, or sure. social but, idea but let, let, i need to throw out a couple of things the communist revolution again looking at individuals who got involved specifically trotsky again i don't only know individuals i don't know movements but people galvanized around Lenin and later on around Stalin. Stalin was considered a god by many people. And again, it, it, just from my theoretical perspective, that makes me think that that is a, a requirement. I don't know why people will not get fired up that much around freedmen, I'm sorry, around freedom, again, around civil rights, around communism, around socialism, around um, Hasidism, without the central figure there. And that, of course warms the cockles of my psychoanalytic heart, because that's where my theory comes from. And I'll, I'll tell you at least where many of my cohort do some thinking in terms of how the individuals get dragged into this. And again, without the central figure there, I don't have a good handle on it. I would just say, I don't know. But again, I do and, know. And, and to be politically astute or fair, or we can even talk about the George Floyd uh, phenomena, right? The, the no issue... question. Always, always, an, always a person, not a town full of people got persecuted. And, and the PR people always know you find an eight-year-old. You know, in Vietnam, you have a picture of some individuals. That's what gets people rolling, not the fact that X or Y or the phenomenon or thousands of people. Right. It so, doesn't work. It so doesn't the, work. The, so what's, what, what's, again, I'm, I'm, I'm like fishing here, but just... From my own uh, armchair here, it sounds like part of it is the idea of tethering 
the emotional connection that we have to another human being who is not you, but could be you and you can connect to. And then layering on top of that, the ideas and the themes that are being expressed. And somehow because of the emotional uh, bonding that you have with that person, the thing that makes you angry and upset, it allows you to sort of absorb some of these uh, you know, I, I guess theoretical or ideas of how we need to change and what needs to happen, and to act recklessly uh, to the point of uh, of what occurred. Um, let me ask you another thing. Uh, you know, and I, I think this is connects to what you said before um, when you talked about uh, you know how you know how, how you know, the anger and the hatred that comes out and the fighting. Um, is there also a, a you know we noticed the uh, the rioters um many of them um sort of like uh, uh were wearing costumes right it was almost like uh there was one image that i saw of the guy who's i'm not sure exactly how he got this uh material on his body but maybe was painted on and he was basically nude and he had like a, he was like a viking of old and then you had others that were, uh, you know, wearing other sorts of paraphernalia, many of them anti-Semitic, as if there was a, a costume, face paint. Um, uh, this seems to be something that, that can probably be taken back to some of the most ancient uh, clan fights uh, that, that human history knows about, right? And even speaking about the clan, <laughs> what allowed them to do the, the these uh, these despicable, horrible, destructive acts was putting on the sheet, right? You know, the Grand Wizard puts on the sheet, and then he's able. So, uh, I'm, what about this idea? The idea of dressing into a persona, like similar to what we talked about in terms of getting behind the wheel and and and, and distancing yourself behind the computer screen. Here, they actually were physically donning these. These, this clothing and like making them feel that they were sort of like superhuman to be able to do something which seemingly had no chance of success, which is over, over well, you know, trying to, however many people were, they didn't have tanks and missiles uh, or anything like that. So maybe talk a little bit about that phenomena as well. Yeah. Okay. So again, you're, you're basically going right where I would go if I were you. And, um, there is something here, let's call it depersonalizing or maybe even de-individuating. You're really losing your individuality. So let me give you my theoretical perspective and tell you where I'm, where I'm coming from, okay? Um, I'm basically going with Jungian theory, and especially as it was elaborated by a, a major um, theorist in Harvard in the, I don't know, the 1940s, um, called microcosm theory. His name was Philip Slater. But it's, it's a phenomenal um, perspective on groups, which I've used continuously in my training. And, and here's the notion. Um, I'm going to go a little bit anthropological, I mean, towards the um, anthropology, towards other species as well, okay? When you look, let's say, at a um, quote-unquote, a mob activity of ants, okay? Uh, it's clear that individual personalities of ants don't matter much. In fact, they're totally interchangeable. There's a mission of whatever it is they have to accomplish, or let's say a colony of bees. They have to accomplish it. 
And one of them becomes the queen, one of them becomes something else. If the queen goes dead, somebody else becomes the queen. There's workers, there's defenders, everything goes on. There's no personality there at all. In other words, when the call comes out, hey, we got to build a nest or we have an invader or there's a new dead bird over here that has to be processed, everything goes and people divide and do their jobs, so to speak. But it's not because these ants... I assume, don't have the capacity to specialize. It's just that when the time comes, that's what they're reduced to. The regression that you mentioned, people wearing costumes or looking like people who are back in the caves, there is a sense there, a clinical sense, that they have given up whatever makes them people as such and that becoming part of a larger group or a larger entity or a mob. Um, the Let me just... The ideas. Let's talk about Jung, okay? Jung talks about, besides individual history and individual motivations, where he's pretty much consistent with the Freud's, he talks about collective. He talks about a collective unconscious, and then the theorists who went beyond him, like the Harvard person at Phillips later, and a bunch of others, talk about a collective conscious as well, not just unconscious, which means that for some aspects, when things get rough, people tend to become less of themselves and more like an entire entity combined with other people. And that becomes the person, so to speak, or the mega person with their own, with the needs of the group, so to speak, that's the plant who they are. They stop functioning as individuals. Okay. So like, let's say in, in running individual groups, for instance, I would actually write out process notes for my groups before the group ever met, and I said, today there will be a revolution, okay? People will rebel against Juni and decide that they're being pushed around or whatever. I had no idea who the rebel leader is going to be, and it made no difference. I knew one of them is going to come up, and they perform the function of the group, so to speak. So the group, it's not. It's much more than group thing. It's group personality, and that's something you have to understand, that what's happening in particular scenes when let's say mob hysteria takes over, is that people stop being themselves and they somehow become something of a larger regressed entity. If you want to call it pre-civilized, you can. And that's what you were picking up over here because people who are ordinarily sane, make a lot of sense, can stick to issues, are all of a sudden totally out of it. I don't know what they're doing. They don't, don't think they're going to overpower the U.S. government. There's something really odd out there and they lose judgment though. So what I'm saying is basically they stopped being themselves. And that's almost, if you want to take an evolutionary perspective, it makes a lot of sense that we don't have time for individual values, individual issues. When the ship is going down, you have to snap into like emergency mode and then you don't matter anymore. It's the island that matters. Like the mother's life doesn't matter. She has to save her kids. I mean, I have, I've had experience with cats, mother cats who defended their litter to the point that it was totally unreasonable. But it makes sense from a group perspective. Okay, I hope I haven't gotten too much over the edge here. Well, I, I think that this um, explanation, which, which, again, is not that you do hear this because you always hear talking heads discussing uh, mob violence, and I've been hearing it, I guess, as a child of the 60s, I've been hearing it uh, since the civil rights era and beyond and, 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 and protests and, and other things and even descriptions by historians about what occurred in the rise of the Nazi regime uh, in Germany. 
the the mm-hmm. problem is, I think that uh, which people have to wrap their heads around is now when you talk about law enforcement, and when you talk about punishment, and when you talk about discovering those people, is it is there an argument to be made now that? We can't judge them the same way we would judge an individual who decided to uh, angrily beat someone because he wanted his money or decided to kill somebody because he wanted to marry his wife. Here we're talking about somebody who almost, I don't know, it's not an excuse, but once he was in that uh, group, groupthink took over, and therefore his actions cannot be seen as the... um, uh, what do they call it? Um, you know, uh, actions that with malice aforethought, uh, premeditated. It, it, they were caught up, and you know, even though you know, I, I saw a film which I know you probably have not seen, but it made a big impression on me when I saw it when I was about ten years old. Uh, called Fury. It was made by Fritz Lang, um, and it's about a, a, it's about a fellow that gets lynched. Uh, played by Spencer Tracy, but he re- not really lynched. They burn him out. Uh, he's accused of of a crime that he didn't commit, and it was so horrendous that the whole town uh, uh, attacks the uh, little uh, courthouse where he is staying, and he is then uh, the the courthouse burns, but incredibly he escapes. But he he gives off the fiction that he's di- that he has died. Because using exactly like it was today, using the um, newsreel footage of someone who was taking pictures, everybody in the town ends up being on trial for the murder of this fellow. And, um, and uh, of course, he's really alive. And, uh, you know, he wants to see that revenge happen. And the film really deals with that. And it's so, again, this just goes to show you how these themes are, are worthwhile investigating throughout uh, our history. And this was a film that was made, I think, 1937. But I remember seeing this program when I was 10 years old and noticing that, you know, the the argument that was trying to be made was you can't, that's not who this person was. And maybe they should not be blamed and maybe they shouldn't be punished. So uh, again, the film is very open-ended about it. And I think it's like, like most good movies are. Um, so, Based on what you're saying, even if we catch all the people and we're able to use our uh, um, sophisticated video techniques to to track down every single yutz that was running around in the halls and waving stuff, maybe they should not be punished to the full extent of the law as individuals because what was going on there was not them themselves. Do you hear what I'm, what I'm saying? Okay, so, but, yeah, I hear you. I just want to take it an exception. You know, I, as a personal pacifist, I have no homage at all to concepts like blame and punishment and responsibility. But I can tell you psychologically, if you're asking, would this happen to anyone if they're put into the situation? I would say, I can't say it would happen, but I think there's a very good chance of people drawn in regardless of their values, their background and whatever. It's almost like saying if you would overdose or if you would take certain kinds of drugs, would you behave in an irrational fashion? The answer is yes. Or there's a good chance you will, depending on your stamina level. And the same thing here, 
it's not something about these people. It's not that this person was necessarily evil or misguided or had like, you know, um, uh, anti-authoritarian feelings to begin with. No, you get drawn into mob actions that are united around a certain person. So if you're asking, uh, by the but by the grace of God, would it have happened to X or Y or Z? The answer is a definite yes. And so if and- that mitigates... In the mind of punishment and blame, yes, it definitely mitigates it because it would be anybody. It would be anybody. Put somebody at that test and their resolve and their personal integrity and whatever values they have, have a good chance of being breached. So, yeah, that is definitely mitigating. I I would argue that in the court as an expert witness. Not a problem. Not knowing the person. Just saying if if you're a human being, yes. Can you be blamed for for what you did? when your child was being threatened by death, by some kind of uh, fellow with a gun, without a gun, your judgment goes out the window. You know, think something basic gets triggered. This is something basic, and you can consider it basically part of a horde mentality, which is programmed into us, maybe so for survival needs. Yes. So, uh, and, and, and we know that this event, though it's very still fresh in our minds, it is going to resonate, and there's going to be uh, months and months of investigation and repercussion. So I think this is a very important point. And, and, and uh, look, the elephant in the room, which I've sort of hinted at, is, of course, you know, Nazi Germany and the German people. And we've talked about this, of course, both of us being children of, uh, of Holocaust parents. Um, again, you know, we when we think about why didn't you do more, how come... You know, I was just interviewed yesterday about my father, Ovasholem, about why he refused to speak Polish, despite the fact that he was proficient in the language and the, the deep hatred that he had against the Poles for joining, for uh, going with the, you know, uh, with the glee that they had in terms of handing Jews over and taking over their, their, their homes. You realize, again, what you're saying can also... It doesn't justify, but as you say, mitigates greatly against blaming whole swaths of people and and countries for their part in allowing genocide to happen, correct? I mean, I feel comfortable blaming people, but I, it doesn't by me carry the notion that there's something about you and somebody else wouldn't have done that. I'm blaming you for being someone who got dragged along. I mean, the key over here is if you want to Put, put your finger on it, is that the boundaries between yourself and what's happening around you, which is ordinarily an ego function, which is important to keep your sanity, you have to know where you end and where the world begins, that boundary gets totally messed up in these kinds of frenetic situations. If you are part of a group and the group is going somewhere and there is a unified theme around it, you lose yourself. You don't know who you are anymore. Well, if everybody's doing this, of course you join it. And there isn't a thing of saying, well, is that really just Juni? Is that what I do? No. Juni doesn't exist anymore. Juni exists only in so part. He's as far part of this ant colony, part of this army, part of the communist movement, part of the Aral Hasidim, A group, or whatever it is. You're not you anymore. You just go. You lose yourself. And that's a that would be true for anybody, yes. I, I want to ask you about something else that we discussed yesterday, you know, um, I know these conversations sometimes seem like they're completely uh, 
uh, off the cuff without much planning. But I know that when I spoke with you yesterday, I, I threw this idea at you that maybe we should talk about it. We didn't we didn't sketch it out completely. But one of the things I mentioned to you yesterday, which I wanted you to think about, and maybe I'll ask again, I'll ask you now about it. Um, I, I have heard of this phenomena the, of people who um, are vigilantes, who and and you can check it up. They're people who actually don costumes and try to do the right thing, like modern day, like actual superheroes that they read about in the comics, uh, in the comic books. Um, people who somehow believe that once they put on the uniform, the costume. They they are capable of superhuman uh, uh, things they normally won't be able to do, um, and uh, of course they do have some requisite uh, abilities. Many of these people are uh, ex police or ex uh, black ops operators, um, and you know I, I think that uh, I don't I, I didn't do a uh, a survey I don't know about the percentage of those people that are in these type of fringe movements. But I, I get a feeling, especially, and, and this is a, the, the people who have been involved in the FBI, who have people who are ex-FBI, ex-police, ex-Green Beret, ex-Navy SEAL, where they have sort of been used to not only putting on costumes, but operating with, almost under the surface operating in a in a way that isn't your normal uh, Norman Rockwell uh Americana but actually doing the 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 incredible exciting but dirty work underneath especially when these people are not involved in uh their jobs anymore going on to the second part of their lives they find it easy to become part of groups that still operate Beyond the law, so I'm I'm, I'm wedding two things: <clears throat> the, his, the the sociological history of people who are in that field, where they're sort of like they realize the plebes; they're the ones that have to keep the law. We're the ones that are really doing the gritty, real work, and therefore the idea of violating law doesn't mean that much. And the second thing I'm wedding to that is once you put on the face paint, once you put on the uniform, things. You are a different person. So can, can you respond to those two things, if you may? Sure, sure, sure. Again, I, I don't know my sociology well, but I definitely know the psychology of what happens to people who are in special ops, especially very dangerous situations, is that they depersonalize. They become someone who is part of something else, and they're not themselves anymore. It's very primitive. It relates to, again, you put your finger on it, the magical feelings of kids who feel they're omnipotent, they're Superman, they can fly, they can do anything. That connotes a break with reality and a break with who they are, and they become something else. They become Popeye. I don't know who they are. Again, I'm being derisive, but the disguise that happens here is very important. It's not a disguise. I'm dressed up for a mask. You don't know who I am. I'm a Klansman. It's, I am not me anymore. To myself, I am not Junior anymore. I am like, wow, I am now an operative. And here too, I guess it doesn't take much for people to snap into that role when the group atmosphere is correct. So um, psychologically, they or psychiatrically probably is the better term, they've distanced themselves from themselves and become someone else. It's almost like you find some of the um, 
uh, writers about tshuva say that tshuva really means that you have to be, I'm no longer that person. So on the negative side here, they lose their values. They're no longer that at all. And I think this guy's belies what's going on here. It really shows, hey, something primitive is going on over here. What, 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 what difference does it make? What kind of mask you're wearing? The answer is, I become that mask. I don't become me anymore. And there's something over there about boundaries and there's a psychiatric tinge to it. So if you're trying to make a case against letting people off the hook by reason of um, derangement, um, there's an argument to be made there, even though it's temporary derangement and usually they can be slapped on the face twice and made to become to reality. That's what's going on. Sure, sure. It's, it's quite odd. I would say I even saw someone there that I knew who was dressed up in a bear suit giving an interview. Okay? And he was complaining, oh, this is really heavy and it's making me sweat. And I'm saying, <laughs> so So what's the story with you? Why are you wearing a bear suit in the capital of all things? But no, he was, um, he did an interview. His interview was very cogent, but it kind of um, um, looked odd in the context of his bear suit, which basically said, don't take this guy as a bona fide person. He is not himself. He's something else. He's a bear. You want to talk to a bear? You do that. Sure. So it's almost like if you think about it, you know. And again, I, I I'm you know a product of my own uh, excessive uh, reading when I was a, a small child, which included not only we've talked about, of course, some of the some of the classics of English literature, but also uh, voraciously gobbling up all the the comics books that I could, and it's sort of like an amalgam of so many different things. So. You know, and again, of course, there were also very classics of English literature, like the Scarlet Pimpernel, Robert Louis Stevenson's, of course, really dealt with this theme uh, directly in uh, Jekyll and, you know, the strange case of Dr. Jekyll, actually, is the way uh, Stevenson pronounced it, and Mr. Hyde. But when you can, when you can actually um, bifurcate or, 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 or split this and say, okay, now when I wear this mask, I am this, you know, rough vigilante that beats people up. And now I take the mask off. I'm this normal guy. What we could say, and again, I'm waiting for you to to sort of like help me with this, is that, you know, there's there's a mishmash of mixed anger, feelings, emotions, and the mask can sort of help you, even if you're not part of a movement, to say, okay, when I put this mask on, now I'm, you know, that that guy. And now I'm that person. And that actually helps me that when I take the mask off, I can sit at the dining room table and schmooze with the kids and go out and play because I've got this ability to sort of focus my negative stuff or my antisocial stuff or my violent stuff uh, within that persona. And and, and and people say, well, that's a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. You're, you, no, you're not a hypocrite. What you are is you, you, you've come up with a method of splitting yourself. You know, you know, Jekyll was was Jekyll and Hyde was gloriously ugly Hyde at the same time. So instead of deal, doing the hard work of sort of like uh, balancing yourself within yourself, what you do is you split yourself. Is what I'm saying just too simplistic? But or is there some truth to what I'm saying here? I hear you. I mean, you're talking basically about the army uniform phenomenon. Let me give you like a nice, simple anecdote, okay? So for years, I worked on um, really intense psychiatric wards with 
criminally insane, uh, serial perpetrators, the works. You, you, I mean, you name it. If any classic people who existed in those days, I worked with them in the criminal world. And I remember, I mean, I also dealt at home with little kids who I loved, with my wife, who I really adored, with my parents, who I get along with very well. And I had to go, like, you know, within 10 minutes from that kind of role, which is really a, a nice father, parent, to a ward where I was dealing with seasoned, um, horrible people, quote-unquote, or deranged people who could do anything. And I had to basically have a very strong backbone, not be too sympathetic because I had to figure out just what's going on. Can we trust this guy? Is he going to kill somebody? Is he not going to kill somebody? What's he up to? And to me, it was the white coat. When I got out of my car at Kings County Hospital, 8.30 in the morning, put on my white coat, I was not someone you would recognize. I would not believe you. I would be suspicious about you. I'd be very comfortable saying, put this person away, lock him up, don't give him any chance for parole because he is dangerous, okay? He's horrible. He has no superego. And then I'd go home at 5 or 5.30 and I'd be back to playing Monopoly with the kids or running around and whatever. And to me, it was the white coat. I literally became somebody else. Tough. I mean, I um, used to specialize at, at, for a certain part of my life in diagnostics of little kids, okay? And I had to tell parents the most horrible news when they came in for something that was innocuous, right? And I would do it because here was my role. The name on the door, this is Dr. Junie. I'm going to tell you what it is. You're the next appointment. I'm telling you what to do. And the person starts crying and falling apart. And I say, okay, here are the resources you can connect. I did not hold anybody's hand, which I would do under normal circumstances. I did not offer them emotional support because if I did that, that's the end of the next person I have to deal with. I have to say it. Here's what you do. Here are the options. And you have to deal with the next person. And to me, it was the a costume that I put on. It literally made me feel like somebody else. And there was no dissonance for me. And I have to give you like the clinical parallel are um, serial perpetrators who lead, so to speak, normal lives. So they're loving to their family, whatever. I mean, I, I think one bizarre example is the, um, the, the German SS officer who had, I mean, in the particular case I knew in Holland, had his residence on the camp in a fenced-off area, and he was, like, grief-stricken about something that happened to his dog who got injured when, during the day, he was murdering people left and right. And there was that split. He went home, he took off his suit, and he put on whatever, his gown that he wore at home, and he changed He changed personalities. He changed, not personalities, he became somebody else. So, yes, and again, we're getting to severe psychopathology here, but I don't think me as a practitioner, I would call myself psychopathological. It was just an ability to just switch gears. Speaking about living in two worlds, it was living from one world then going into the other and going back to the other every you know, five days a week. It's no. quite a circus. Yes. How you to just lose yourself and you become somebody else. You become someone who's part of a big machine and you're no longer you. You're no longer Kevin Levitz or Junie. You are part of something that now has a life of itself. Well, so that kind of you know, closes it up. I think. Yeah, I, 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 right, and I, I think so. All right, let's hope that uh, this coming week doesn't bring us any more um, highlights from the uh, from events happening 
uh, here in the U.S. that, that are, res- are reverberating. And we'll hopefully be back again uh, next week with another edition of Standing in Two Worlds. Thanks again, Dan, Sam. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. Thank you.